It is a tragedy that some of the Bible stories we know the best, perhaps we truly engage with the least in terms of truly grappling with the reality that would have struck those who lived through it. Now, all of you, I suspect all, every single one of you who is here with us this morning knows the story of the walls of Jericho falling. We are taught that story from the early days if we were raised in a Christian family. If we were not, we see it portrayed in scripture. We see it discussed. We think of that story of the scarlet rope hanging down from Rahab's uh, window, a picture of salvation in Christ. We know the story. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And if you know it, sing it with me. And the walls came a-tumbling down. We know that. We know the story. But do we really know the story? Do we really experience the poignance of that story? This is a story of incredible destruction. An entire city completely wiped out. And it is a story of incredible salvation. One family survives. One. Can you imagine being Rahab and looking around at a city on fire that is your people speaking your language? The people that you have known your entire life, the customs that you have known, the entire city on fire, and you alone emerge from that city alive? Can you imagine? It was very poignant for me that yesterday I was studying about the walls of Jericho coming down when perhaps all of us were reflecting on walls coming down 20 years ago. The terror of that moment as I was watching a documentary about it with Tabitha or I was showing my children footage that they had never seen and had no reason to experience, they were not even alive. I was again pressed with that poignance, that sobriety. I saw one story of firemen that had gone up into one of the towers to rescue people. And they made the decision to come down when they heard that the other tower had collapsed. And as they came by the fifth, um, as they came by one of the floors, maybe the 20th floor or something, they came across a woman who had a bad leg, an, an elderly woman who had a bad leg, and, and, they, and they made the decision, are, are we going to just go down and get out, or are we going to wait for her? She was hobbling down the stairs, and they waited for her. And they helped her down, painstakingly, step by step down, until they started hearing literally the tower collapse above them. And I saw this fireman give this account of the, the, he hearing the, the, each floor collapsing above like an, a mini explosion. Boom, 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 boom. The entire stairwell just shaking, vibrating. And the wind that was being compressed down that stairwell, it was just flying, just driving them. All that pressure. And about 100 floors collapsed on them. And they were in a void. And they realized that all of them, they were alive. 
the, literally the building had collapsed around them. And because they had slowed down to go with this woman, they survived. This woman stopped on the fifth floor. She just was exhausted. And, and they, the story we watched yesterday as, as they were retelling it in these first person accounts from these firefighters telling them, saying what they experienced. Ultimately, they saw a beam of light coming through. They realized that there was daylight. You can look it up. The miracle of stairwell B, the miracle of stairwell B, a handful of firefighters having the building literally collapse on top of them. But what was remarkable was hearing the testimony of the people who emerged. The people who had a new look on life after they got out of those towers when so many other hundreds did not. There was one woman who was on, I think, the 82nd floor, and she walked all the way down the stairwell, and she testified that she was of the last group of people who walked out of that stairwell before the building collapsed. And she talked about how the guilt that she felt after that point, that why did I survive and no one else did? Now again, put yourself in this picture Put yourself in Rahab's shoes. She walks out when no one else does. And Hebrews 11 is bringing us into this poignant, sobering picture, particularly on the weekend, and we remember the horrors of 9-11, that this woman, by faith, she perished not, with them that believe not. Why? By faith, Rahab emerged from that city alive. And I want to try to retell this story that is so familiar to us today from perhaps this perspective, this sobering perspective, this poignant perspective of one family and one family alone being spared. And Hebrews 11 wants us to make clear it was by faith, by faith. How and why. The message this morning is entitled, By Faith, Destruction and Salvation. By Faith, Destruction and Salvation. We're going to look at this in three different aspects. First of all, a city doomed. Secondly, the walls falling. And thirdly, a family saved. A city doomed, the walls falling and a family saved. We're going to need to go back after we look here at Hebrews 11 to Joshua and look at the, at the actual narrative that we see here in our Old Testament. But notice first in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, what Johnny read for us this morning. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about, they were encircled seven days. Now let's go back to Joshua chapter 6, shall we? You can keep a finger there in, Josh, in Hebrews 11 or put a marker there. But let's take a look at Joshua chapter 6 together. And let's start with verse 1. What has happened here in verse, in, that, is, that has led us up to this point? Last week we talked about the Hebrews coming through the Red Sea as by dry land. That was by faith. God said, go forward. And they went forward, even though it didn't seem to make any sense. They were trapping themselves with no return. And now 40 years has passed. They have 
not acted by faith. They have acted in unbelief. They have rejected God's call to go forward into the land out of fear. And now that generation has died. And now Joshua has taken over the great military general. And he takes over for Moses. And now the people have crossed or are just about to cross the Jordan River. And there right in front of them is the city of Jericho. Jericho was an extremely strategic city. In fact, this has an incredible archaeological history. It has been the site of multiple archaeological digs over the last hundreds of years, 100 or so years. And I saw something very interesting. There's evidence there, apparently, of at least 23 different civilizational layers in the city of Jericho, dating back, of course, time immemorial. And this city was extremely strategic for the children of Israel because it was right near the Jericho or the Jordan River, only about five miles away from the Jordan River, not far from the Dead Sea. And if it was a strategic city because uh, it would be a very natural place that you'd go if you were going to continue on in conquest toward the city of Jerusalem. And so Jericho was an extremely strategic location. We know about this city historically. But notice what God's command is here in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now Jericho was straightly shut up. It was completely sealed because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. It was an ancient city, well fortified. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, the city, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. valor. And ye shall compass or encircle the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once, thus shalt thou do six days. And he goes on to tell what this plan of action will be. But notice what God's command is to the people of Israel. He had told them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, he said, But thou shalt utterly destroy them, these people, namely the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. It was a command of utter destruction. Now it is easy for us, particularly for skeptics, to say this is genocide. How could a loving God, how could a just God order the murder of civilians, of people? How could he be ordered that these people be wiped out? And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. Because not only was this God's promise, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people dating back to Abraham, I will give you this land. What we miss is that this was a direct divine judgment against the people that were living there. How do we know that? Because God told Abraham that all those years before. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 15, God is promising to Abraham that his people would, his descendants would have this land. They would dwell in this land. This would be their land. And listen to what he says in God tells Genesis, um, Abraham in Genesis 15. But in the fourth generation, they, thought they shall come hither to this land again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What was God saying to Abraham? Those people will be judged, but they haven't reached the brink yet. It says something about God's patience. That God says, judgment will come. It's, not, it's just not coming yet. 
because the cup, if you will, of that sin has not reached the brink. Listen to what God um, tells Moses in Deuteronomy 12. He said, thou shalt not do as these other lands have done under the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What was going on in this land? Child sacrifice the most abominable, the most appalling acts of wickedness that were uh, uh, a horror to a holy God. And so this was a divine judgment against this land, every bit that it was the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And where I rest and where I land on that is a God who creates mankind, is more than capable and is entirely just in judging their wickedness, their evil, their moral abominations in the way that he sees fit. And this was this judgment, a city that was entirely doomed. God said, I've given it to you and you are going to wipe it out. You are going to destroy it. But notice secondly here, not just a city doomed, but the walls falling. Let's keep on going in, in, Jericho, or sorry, in, in Joshua chapter 6. Verse 4 says, And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. I want you to imagine, what was the protection of the city of Jericho? Walls. For a long time, people scoffed at this story. They said this could not have possibly happened. But do you know what archaeology has uncovered about the city of Jericho? In various excavations, they found some very interesting things about how Jericho was destroyed they discovered that it had been utterly burned to the ground, utterly blackened. They actually saw this destruction. Of a secular, an entirely secular archaeologist discovered that the walls of the city had bricks piled up on the outside of them, suggesting the walls truly fell over. Not only that, they found in this excavated city of Jericho, they found grain that was still in their containers. Now you say, why is this relevant? Because in Joshua chapter 3, the Bible tells us it was harvest season, which would be entirely relevant that the people had just gathered in their harvest. It was still there. There was a spring inside the city. This city was shut up. And what that means is they could have lasted a long time under siege. It had just been harvest. The grain was still there. And they found this city utterly burned. In fact, you can read an article in the New York Times in 1990, from 1990, after some of these archaeological findings. The title is Believer's Score in Battle Over the Battle of Jericho. And this was how the, that article begun in the New York Times. After years of doubt among archaeologists, a new analysis of excavations has yielded a wide range of evidence supporting the biblical account about the fall of Jericho. It may well be true that in the words of the old spiritual, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Now there are some to this day who are attempting to say that came earlier before the time of, 
of the of um, the Israelites. Others are defending this narrative, uh, continuing to defend the historicity of it. But it's truly remarkable to see when you see the historical evidence about how Jericho fell, about how the city was destroyed. And archaeology has told us a little bit about these walls. This is truly staggering. When you think, what do you think of when you think of the walls falling down? I bet you, you don't think about what the walls of Jericho actually were. Are you ready? Archaeologists tell us that the walls of Jericho had an initial wall, a retaining wall on the outside, maybe 10 to 15 feet tall. Okay? And after that wall, there was an embankment going up maybe 35 degrees, something a little steep. And this went up to another wall above that. It was a mud brick wall, six feet thick and about 20 to 26 feet high. So I want you to imagine this. You've got a lower retaining wall of stone that is about the height of a basketball hoop or taller. Then above that, an embankment going up until you see another 20 to 26 foot wall. In other words, the top of the wall is about 46 feet high and only there is the mound where Jericho was. I looked it up, the, the Jericho was probably about seven and a half football fields, the actual size of the city. 46 feet tall. John, how, how tall do you think that is up there? You can imagine another 10 feet above the tallest point in this building, and you are Israelites walking around the walls. Again, friends, this is archaeology. We're just looking at what actually happened in these walls. You're walking around that city looking up, and the wall goes beyond the ceiling of this building. What would you think? And what does God tell you to do? He tells you, Go walk around it once a day for six days. Oh yeah, and then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times and shout, and the walls are going to fall. Say, God? Really? Really? But that's exactly what they did. They walked around the city these times, and notice what we read, starting in verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns went or before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned in the camp. So they did six days. What do you think those people thought up on the wall? What on earth is going on? I wonder what mockery, if any, these people experienced from those who were up on the perch with an entire harvest worth of grain, with their own city spring, with 45 foot in total walls, looking at these people and saying, what are you doing? And they marched. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And what happened? 
So the people shouted, verse 20, when the priest blew with the trumpets and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Do you see that? What happened? The wall fell down and created a spot for them to go up into the city. They went up into the city. And then what? Every man straight before him and they took the city. This is what I read from that New York Times article. You can find it online yourself. Other evidence examined by Dr. Wood, this archaeologist, seemed to bolster the case for a Joshua connection. As related in the Bible, the event occurred after spring harvest and the Israelites burned the city. Buried stones, bricks, and timbers were blackened from a citywide fire. And excavations uncovered large quantities of grain stored in the ground floors of houses, indicating that the city fell shortly after the spring harvest. Utter destruction and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city both man and woman young and old and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword and they burned it with fire now amidst all that chaos amidst all that divine conquest and judgment against the people of that city that had engaged in all of this wickedness against god one family emerges One family is spared. And our tendency would be to say on these things, well, that must have been a good family. That must have been the one upright one. That must have been the lot of that city. The lot in the Old Testament who was spared from Sodom and Gomorrah. No, it was the prostitute's family. You say, what? One family makes it. Whose family? The known prostitute in town, she makes it. Her family survives. Why? Hebrews 11 says, by faith. By faith. What is going on here? Now notice something about this Hebrews 11 account. It calls her Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. It wants to make clear we know that she was a prostitute. One other time, two other times, but one other time when this is mentioned in the New Testament, James chapter 2, she's also called Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. Here we see in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 where she's also mentioned in the Bible. What is she called? The prostitute. The Bible wants us to make clear, wants to make clear to us that the one person who survived was the prostitute. Now, I just want to pause for just a footnote here. We need to recognize something about the, what's called the profession. It's called the oldest profession, prostitution. As one person has said who is working to end this scourge, we shouldn't call it the oldest profession because it's not. It's not at all. It's, it's the oldest form of exploitation. And sometimes we can fall into one of two traps when it comes into this area of what today is trying to be excused or even legitimized as sex work. It's horrible and it's wicked in the sight of God. We can lose some aspects of the moral indignation over what this kind of work does, what it does to the person who engages in it, the kind of... of, um, Shame, the kind of debasement of someone who sells themselves for other people's pleasure, who sells themselves for other people's 
enjoyment, not only to that person, but to the person who participates, the person who pays, the person who receives those quote-unquote services. Proverbs chapter 7 tells us in the most poignant of terms how utterly destructive this is, even in the most consensual of forms, even in the most quote-unquote consensual forms of this activity. We see it's described in Proverbs 7 as a man, a young man who is going like an ox, an ox to be slaughtered. That's what the Bible calls. And the person who participates in this to receive the money from this experience, the pimp or whoever else it is, is literally trafficking in blood money because it is involving the incredible destruction of every party who is involved in it and the families and others and the community of those who are touched by it. We as Christians need to speak up with moral indignation to say this is always wrong and there should be no attempts to legitimize it. Sometimes we forget about how close to home this strikes. Did you know that there are nearly 21 million victims around the globe of human trafficking, human sex trafficking? That the average age in which these mostly women were introduced was at 13 to human trafficking? That human trafficking around the world is a $150 billion industry and growing human trafficking? And this is not something that is just happening around the world. It's happening here. The Twin Cities is one of the top sites in the entire United States for child trafficking. Did you know that? The FBI has identified our Twin Cities as one of the most problem spots for human trafficking or for child trafficking. Since 2015, this area has the third highest number of human trafficking cases. I'm getting this from the Minnesota governmental website the third highest number of human trafficking cases. This is going on around us. And if we just fall into the trap of the world to say, oh, you know what, let two consensual people do whatever they want to do, we're missing that this is always exploitative. This is always destructive. It is always damaging. Which means not only that we as Christians must steadfastly stand against the legitimization of so-called sex work, we must ensure that we are not only never participating in it, but never giving any solace, never giving any support. Friends, some people don't realize that then when they are engaging, even in, in pornography and other things, they are supporting sex trafficking. They are supporting it by the links they click on, by the money they pay, even for what they consider to be a kind of consensual activity. We as Christians need to stand resolutely and say this is always wrong and we will not give harbor, we will not support an industry that is destroying the lives of everyone that it touches. Now where were we? I think we need to say that, but we also need to say something else. While we stand up with moral indignation against the evil of this practice, we stand with completely open hearts to those who want to be freed from it with completely open arms to say, there is hope, there is liberty outside of what you are experiencing now. You don't need to debase yourself. You don't need to engage in this kind of practice. And we see this because the Bible wants to tell us that Rahab was a prostitute, that Rahab was delivered from this. Do you know there's one place, one chapter in the Bible where Rahab is mentioned and it's not mentioned that she was a prostitute? 
only one place, only one chapter, Matthew chapter 1, when Rahab is identified as the mother of Boaz, that Boaz from Ruth, identified therefore as, uh, as the great, great, I think, grandmother of David, the greatest king of Israel, and the, and the, and the foremother of Jesus the Messiah. What happened to Rahab? Her story didn't end with being a prostitute in a wicked, depraved town in Canaan. It ended with her being a wife and a mother and ultimately the foremother of Jesus Christ. And what we need, what we desperately need is not just to stand against the evils of this practice in our society, but to go forward with open arms to say, you don't need to suffer in this anymore. You can be delivered. You can be rescued. And I'm so grateful for the Christian testimonies, the Christian examples of those who are fighting sex trafficking and prostitution on the front lines because of their Christian faith. And in fact, many of you, I won't mention her name, but many of you remember uh, several years back, a dear sweet lady who came to fellowship with us, come faithfully to our church and was very open about that past, about her past as a prostitute and what God had delivered her from. Praise God for those stories. And may we see more of them in the years ahead. There's hope for all those who are suffering from this, which destroys lives. Who she was, she was a prostitute. But ultimately who she was, she was a trophy of God's grace by faith. Go back with me to Joshua 2 and let's try to understand what Rahab did here. How does she come into this story? How is she the one who receives deliverance? Start with me in chapter 2 and verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men <clears throat> to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. You say, what are two spies doing in a prostitute's house? Now, we don't need to impute any ill motives to them. Because if you were a spy, where would be a place where strangers are known to come and go openly where is there a place where perhaps a side of town that's quiet or dark or people don't want to be seen going in and out they perhaps steal in and out quietly from that sense this place would have been the perfect place for these two men to go and try to understand what was going on in town without disruption and he was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said, Thus there came men unto me, but I, I wist not whence they were. I don't know where they went. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out. Whither the men went, I, I, I wot not. I don't know. I don't know where they're from. I don't know where they went. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan under the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. What did she do? She lied. That's what she did. They said, there are two men in your house. Bring them out. She said, nope. I don't know where they went. Now, it's interesting to note the Bible doesn't justify her lie. But it does do this. It tells us what was underlying all of her action. 
And what was that? Hebrews 11 tells us it was faith. Now, where does faith show up in this story? Keep on reading. Look with me in verse 8. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. So they were there still up there on the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites under, that were on the other side Jordan, Sion and Og, whom he utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. Now listen to this. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Do you know Rahab had never talked to a follower of Jehovah once in her life? Never once until these two men. And yet just from what she had heard, she said, he's the real God. The gods that we have worshipped, they do nothing. He's the real God. It's amazing. Keep on going. Now, therefore, I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the two spies give, give her a promise. We'll deliver you if everyone's in your house. And you have this scarlet rope hanging from your window that was used to let them down to escape. Friends, let's be very candid. What was Rahab? What was the evidence of her faith? She was a traitor. That's what she was. What would you call what Rahab did? She was living among her people. Her king sent, two spy, uh, sent to her to say, there are two spies in your house. Bring them out. They're trying to destroy our city. And she said, inwardly, I'm on, I'm on their side, not the king's side. I'm on his side, not their side. She was a traitor. Now, in our world, we think of Benedict Arnold, the traitor of the, of the American Revolution. We think of traitors as a certain kind of way. But this woman was a traitor by faith. She was a traitor because she realized that she couldn't stand on the side of Jericho and on the side of the one true God. It came time to choose. And she said, in the time to choose, I'm going to stand with Jehovah. And I'm going to see myself and my entire family saved. And that's exactly what happened. Now, friends, what is Rahab a picture of for ourselves? The one family, the one family that not only heard what God had done, but exercised the faith in Jehovah to say, I am on the side of the children of Israel. The one family, every other family didn't. As Hebrews 11 says, they were those that believed not. She was the only one who acted by faith. What does she represent? I want us to suggest this and think about this. She represents the fact that judgment and destruction is coming to the entire world. That God has ordained Jesus Christ as the Messiah to be the judge of every human being and that one day everything we see will be judged and the evil in this world will be utterly consumed 
and destroyed. That is the picture. And in this destruction, there is only one way of escape. That is the message of the entire Bible. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, there is only one means of escape, and it is the escape of Rahab. A scarlet rope in a window. W.A. Criswell, the great Baptist preacher of the, of the 20th century, preached a sermon on this that was really a sermon on the entire Bible. He said, this is the scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible, this one scarlet rope, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Do you remember how the Israelites were delivered on that great day of judgment before they passed out of Egypt? Blood that was placed on the doorposts. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And now here Rahab, a Gentile, a Canaanite woman, a prostitute, her one means of escape is a scarlet rope hanging in her window, identifying her as that picture of the blood of Christ that was shed for all of us. This one picture that all of us, our only hope of escape, is in what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death on the cross. Only in the forgiveness of our sins through what he has accomplished. Only if that scarlet rope is identified to our account is our hope, is our only hope of salvation. There was a destruction coming. It will affect all those who do not believe. And the only means of salvation is for those who identify entirely with Jesus Christ. Do you remember what your Bible says? The friend of the world is the enemy of God. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross, you must deny yourself, and you must follow me. Do you know there's a sense in which every Christian, everyone who is saved, has turned their back on the values of the world around them and said, I'm on Jesus' team. What faith is, is not just a, a thought that passes through your mind, is not just an intellectual ascent, oh sure, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he died on the cross for me. It is the change of my allegiance. It is the movement of my heart to say, I don't identify with this world anymore. I identify with Jesus Christ and him alone. That is the action of faith. And it is only in that allegiance, only in that identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ, like Rahab did when she hung a scarlet rope in her window, it is the only hope of our salvation, of our deliverance from the judgment to come. What about you, friend? Have you grappled with what the Bible says that one day you and I will be judged that one day everything we see around us will be destroyed. And then unless we have a salvation, we ourselves will receive the eternal judgment of God. Have you grappled with the fact that there is only one means of escape? Only in the identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only when by faith we put our trust in him as the only source of our salvation, identifying with him pledging, in a sense, our allegiance to him that Jesus is Lord? Have we escaped by faith? Are we those 
who are bringing those around us to faith like Rahab gathered up all her family into her own house. Friends, think about what Rahab felt as she left those smoking ruins of Jericho to start a new life with God's people. Imagine the gratitude to recognize that she had been a trophy of grace based on that scarlet rope hanging out of her window. Friends, how much more should you and I go out into our own world today recognizing that we are trophies of grace, we are sinners. We have never deserved for one day the salvation in Jesus Christ that we have been given. We are the prostitute Rahab who deserve destruction and yet by faith in identifying with the true God and his work has been delivered. May each of us, may each of us walk in that same kind of gratitude that same kind of awe that we have been trophies of grace. And like Rahab, may we gather all those around us to be saved with us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this story of destruction, yes, but this incredible story of deliverance, that there is grace. There is grace for a sinner like Rahab. There is grace for sinners like us who so often, every day, rebel in our own ways against your commands to love you supremely and to love others selflessly. And I pray, Father, that you would bring your work to bear on our hearts and minds. I pray that each of us would leave here this morning worshiping you, grateful, for what you have done to bring us as trophies of grace to salvation. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never identified with him, won't you follow him today? And if your heart has grown cold to your own salvation, to your own deliverance, won't today you bow in worship and love that you as a sinner have been made a trophy of grace. Father, thank you for this scarlet thread. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only one, the only name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. May we take that news to the world even today in Jesus' name. Amen.